Welcome back to another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. This is a podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a podcast for singers, songwriters, musicians, recording artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they're doing. I'm Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated, which provides management, publicity, and related services. I mentioned last week that I really find myself a lot lately writing on Instagram. Newsletter subscribers saw it first. So hopefully this is a moot point and you've already been receiving the weekly e-newsletter that I send out every Wednesday. There is information in there about the latest podcast episode, plus other goings-on, including exclusives that only the people who are signed up to that list get to see first. But if you are not getting that, it's quick and easy to sign up. Just go to the show website, nhte.net, and pop in your email address. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Nashville, my guest is an internationally renowned producer, engineer, and mix master who has over 125 gold and platinum records and 50 top 20 singles. He has worked on dozens of Grammy-nominated and winning albums and has been personally nominated 11 times for the Best Engineered Album category, winning twice. He has also won an Emmy Award for Best Sound Mixing for a Variety Special and a Dove Award. Earlier this year, he put out a book called Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Bill Schnee. Hey, Bruce. Good to be with you. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Looking forward to this. I appreciate you making time. Sure, sure. We certainly have plenty to talk about today and countless highlights to draw from, but let's set the stage first for the audience in terms of present day. I mentioned that you're calling in from Nashville. As this interview is being set up, I convinced myself that you were probably based in Los Angeles, where I understand you did have your studio. Do you still have such a facility out there, or is it all Nashville these days? No, it's all Nashville now. We moved here uh, about three years ago, and uh, the music community here is really great. And funny enough, they do a lot more live sessions here than in Los Angeles these days. Mm. So it's it's really been a fun it's been a fun move. Mm. Interesting, interesting. Well, certainly on this episode, we're going to be hearing a whole lot more about the sound, the recording aspect of the music industry, much more so than when I interview a performer. It's so, so important to be putting out great audio at a time when so many people are trying to do it themselves. Some of them, unfortunately, doing so on a shoestring budget. Don't skimp when it comes to getting studio-quality audio. I mentioned last week that I am now using a terrific piece of gear from a company called Centrance, like Entrance with a C at the beginning, and that they make a very similar unit for musicians. That is called the Mixer Face, and it's the centerpiece of your studio at home. It's your pro-quality handheld portable recording device, and it's your mobile interface when you're not home and you want to stream from your tablet or phone. I love that I don't have to learn two different devices, meaning an audio interface and then a handheld recorder for when I'm out on location. I just disconnect the unit from my recording rig here and take it with me on the road, and I'm ready to go for an on-location recording. While this is an all-metal enclosure, it's not a huge heavy piece. It's portable, bulletproof, it has phantom power, so dynamic or condenser mics can be used. And for my listeners, there is a bonus when you purchase the mixer face. On the show website, nhte.net, click the ad 
for Centrance's Mixer Face. And when you place your order with them, use the coupon code BRUCE to get a free watertight accessory case to carry it in. Deliver studio-quality audio to your fans, your audience, every project, every time. Bill, let's just continue that conversation about uh, moving to Nashville three years ago. What prompted the relocation from California? Well, uh, when the record business started dying as we knew it, (laughs) reforming as it now has, the studio business was no longer super profitable. Budgets have gone down and so on, not anywhere near as many acts are being signed and so on. And uh, my studio was a very uh, a big, it was a literal appendage of me, a very big part of my personality and everything that went into it. It was very, very custom. We built everything in it, not only the room, which was the most important reason for building a studio. I wanted a room with a sound like the studios built in the 50s. And uh, But we built everything, including the recording console. Wow. And I had a, uh, have, I still have a huge collection of vintage tube mics, which I believed to be the best. And uh, you know, two, two mic preamps out in the studio. It was a very, very special place. And, uh, I, I just wasn't interested in starting to basically give it away, bastardizing it. Mm. So, um, I, I sold it. The studio next door, Larrabee was a bunch of mixed rooms and they'd always said, if you ever want to sell, you know, we want to buy. And that's what I did. And then it was, uh, well, what now? And, uh, I thought, you know, I got to have a mix room, uh, cause I'm going to continue mixing my own stuff and other people's and uh so uh nashville seemed like uh, like a great place to give it a try and as i called it the great experiment uh, i told the real estate agent i want a house that's easy to sell because if this doesn't work mm. i want to you know be able to get out of it but Smart. it's worked great <laughs> so are you quote unquote open for business these days in the sense that clearly you would be a project studio not a commercial studio or, or at least that would be my guess but are you just working with recurring clients or say maybe taking on referrals from existing clients. Uh, and mind oh, you, no. I, I, I would ask you, are you retired? But I don't know that someone who has had a 50-plus year career can ever walk away from it entirely. And besides that, I did see five recording projects listed for you dated 2021. Yeah, so no, not at all. Uh, my my joke has always been uh, that I want to drop dead in the studio, you know, <laughs> uh, right over the console. I, I, you know, the, the R word is, uh, is, is a very bad word to me. So yes, um, uh, music is, is a tremendous passion. I'm so fortunate that I'm, uh, in great health and I have all the energy and the, well, maybe not quite all the energy, but definitely all the passion that I had 50 some years ago when I got started. So yeah, I'm, uh, in fact, what's interesting is, I've done two of the best albums I've done in the last 10 years since I moved to Nashville. Wow. Um, one of them is out. One of them just came out and one of them uh, is about to come out. Do you want to mention who those two artists are? Sure. The first one, the one that just came out is by a girl named Mandy Barnett, who uh, I've often said is the, uh, is an artist that not enough people know about. I think my quote in the book was, one of the best singers I've ever put a microphone in front of. And mm. as you can tell from reading, I put microphones in a lot of phenomenal singers. <laughs> she is just an amazing singer. I only did, I only produced one country record in my career and that was 25 years ago. And it was Mandy when she was a kid. This record is a very special one. It's the songs from the, the torch songs from Billie Holiday's last album, when she, while she was alive. Mm. Uh, so these torch songs, 
arranged by Sammy Nestico, who's a name many people might not know about today, but this guy has, you know, been, I mean, he worked with many of the bigs, the really big artists back then, you know, he started in the thirties and he was 95 years old when he arranged this album. And he, he had said, let me see if I can do one and maybe you could model, model it after if, if, I, if you like what I do. Well, the, the story goes, he ended up doing the whole album. Mm. And he, was, he lives in California. He wasn't healthy enough to make the trip out. But we did, we, I recorded it all live uh, with a 57-piece orchestra mm. at Ocean Way Studios here in Nashville with this songbird singing these songs. And uh, I, it's just a very, very special album. Wow, wow. And the other? The other is uh, not out yet. It'll be out next year. It's by Michael Feinstein. Those that don't know, he is, uh, in addition to a piano player, singer, has a club in in New York and sit-ins in San Francisco and Los Angeles, and is the, in addition to that, is the foremost authority on the American Songbook. And uh, this is a, a very unusual album It's that he wanted to do. It's Gershwin songs done as duets with country music artists as the duet partners. Mm. And if that doesn't sound like a left-footed idea, <laughs> but what's brilliant is what's brilliant is a, a great group of uh, acoustic instruments were all put together. So, and there's no piano, mm. which is interesting because Michael plays piano, and <laughs> those all those songs were written on piano. Oh my gosh! But the the idea. So we have you know all acoustic instruments. You know, there's an electric guitar now and then, but but you know upright bass and fiddle accordion and uh those songs with those chord changes and of course the lyrics and that as in addition but with this musical backdrop is really something special wow wow fascinating project and by the way for the audience you're going to hear a few different names on this episode and it's just scratching the surface you name the artist bill has worked with them when you go on his website you're going to see scrolling across the bottom just an absolute potpourri of names of artists, projects over the years. I'm looking at it right now on my screen. Rod Stewart has come across the bottom. There's a testimonial from Huey Lewis. You're going to see names on there that are just going to amaze you. Bette Midler, Barry Manilow. The list goes on. Herb Alpert, Steely Dan. I, I can't even begin to scratch the surface here. So by all means, I'm not going to do justice to the amazing resume that Bill has, but do spend some time on his website. I'll be giving out those plugs a couple times as this episode goes along. Let's backtrack now, Bill, and dive into how you ever even got started in music in the first place. Was this the classic case of bounced around playing in different bands and that then got drawn into the engineer side of the console? Like, Share with us how you got your start. Yeah, that's basically it. Um, my parents moved to Los Angeles from San Francisco uh, for my senior year of high school. And, uh, you know, coming into a school not knowing anybody, but I met a couple of guys that were musicians that were starting a band, and uh, I, I played organ. I said, you know, do you think an organ would fit in? And they said, let's try it. And it worked, and we started, uh, you know, playing around and writing songs. And uh, we made some demos, and one of the one of the guys in the band knew somebody who knew somebody that was in the music business. And that somebody was Gary Usher, who lived uh, by the Beach Boy Wilson family. He was friends with the Wilsons. And 
he wanted to be a Beach Boy, in fact, but uh, didn't didn't get that job. But he did write 409 and In My Room with Brian Wilson. Mm. Uh, so he he heard our stuff and liked it, called us in for a meeting, and basically he had just made a deal with Decca Records' production deal, and he signed us. Wow. And he brought in a guitar player named Richie Podler, a phenomenal musician, who also turned out, I would later find out, to be a phenomenal engineer and producer. And he played on our records. Well, when we got dropped, I went uh, to Richie's studio and told him the sad news. And he said, oh, I can get you guys another record deal. And based on his word, he got us another record deal. Mm. And we had recorded for DECA at Capitol and West United Western, two of the best studios then and now in Los Angeles. And when I came into the control room in Richie's little studio, which was much funkier than those two, you know, glorious rooms, came into the control room to hear a playback of our first track. I remember looking up at those speakers and feeling something emotionally that I had never heard in those other great studios. Mm. And it, it hit me so much. It was a real aha moment for me, so much so that when the song ended, I literally pointed at all the equipment and said, Richie, can you teach me how to do this? Wow. And he said, no, I'm teaching this guy, Bill Cooper. Get out there and do another take. <laughs> but that was the defining moment for me. Amazing. Amazing. Wow. And a few minutes ago for the audience, you heard a mention of Larrabee Studios. And coincidentally, just two weeks ago in episode 403, Bo Bascoro told a real interesting story about how he ended up recording at Larrabee Studios. If you didn't hear that a couple weeks ago, go back and listen to my interview with him. Bill, in November 1972, the third studio album by Carly Simon was released titled No Secrets. Talk about your involvement with that, including where that was recorded and the surprise backing vocals on Your So Vain. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, I did a brief stint as a producer-engineer uh, at CBS for Clive. And while I was there, I met and worked with Richard Perry, the great record producer of the 70s, who was producing Barbara Streisand at the time. And he uh, he called me uh, sometime later after I'd left him, uh, CBS a couple of years later, and he said, I'm in England making a record with Carly Simon, and I have all the, it's almost finished, everything's mixed but two songs, and I want you to mix it, the two rock songs. And I had come... Uh, my early recordings as an engineer then, when I learned engineering, was, in fact, back at Richie Podler's studio, which was by then known as one of the as the premier rock studio in Los Angeles, independent studio. So Richard thought of me as a, a rock guy. So he saved those two songs for me. He didn't mix them in England. And he came uh, and brought them back, and I, I mixed them. And uh, then subsequently, he said, he just he said, let's try it on one of the songs. I already, try a mix on one of the songs I've already done, and I did that, and I ended up mixing the whole album. Wow! But yeah, when I was doing the "You're So Vain," the song "You're So Vain," it was it was pretty funny because I don't even think it was marked as who it was. But uh, I pull up the fader for the harmonies, and lo and behold, it was Mick Jagger. <laughs> and most people don't realize that until you go back and hear it again, and then it, you, it's unmistakable that that mm. was Mick Jagger singing behind her. Amazing. Amazing. Is there some story behind that as to how and or why he ended up on that that you know of? Yeah. I wasn't there, of course, uh, when it happened, but what they told me was that uh, Harry Nielsen, who Richard had already done a, a great record with, um, 
uh, Harry Nielsen was was in England scheduled to do the background vocals in the studio and uh, they were just getting started and Mick called up and just to see what to, what was going on and Harry said come on down here and he came in and, and uh, Nielsen himself said let let him do the backgrounds hmm. and uh, that's how it came about wow wow fantastic storytelling and folks there's a lot more to come in fact let's have you tell one other story here and then I want to ask you deeply about the book that came out earlier this year I, I'm I'm sure at somewhere at some point in your career along the way you had the distinction of working with the king of pop himself Michael Jackson yeah this is actually a very fun story I think uh, it is for me so the first studio cutting my teeth as an engineer the first studio was uh, kind of a Mickey Mouse studio just wasn't that good in Hollywood hmm. and we didn't do that much work, but one day Motown calls up, and this is uh, 1969, uh, I believe. Mm. Uh, Motown calls up and says, um, do you have this Thursday open? And I said, yeah, we have a lot of Thursdays open, uh, but what do you want to do? And I said, well, we're we're going to do some background vocals with the Jacksons. Mm. And uh, so I said, oh, great. And uh, R&B is, I think, really that old school R&B, 60s and 70s, is really my favorite genre. I love all genres of music. I've been very fortunate to work in all areas. But I really love that. And I had bought their first record, and they were working on the second record. So there I was on Thursday, anxiously awaiting, and a green Econoline van pulled up with on the side written, the Jacksons, Gary, Indiana, and Papa Joe got out and opened it up, and uh, out the five boys popped. And so we went in the studio, and I got they brought their own engineer, a Motown engineer, and I went and got them set up with the headphones and made sure everything was going good. And then I went out in the foyer and hung out with Michael, who wasn't singing backgrounds. He had sung the lead. And so he's 10 going on 11, I think. Mm. And, uh, I, you know, we sat down and I just started talking. He was very animated, shuffling his feet and, you know, just kind of happy go lucky. And, and I said, you know, I, I bought your first record and uh, I, th- I think it's great. <laughs> you know, and you know, you guys are going to, I think you guys are going to be huge stars and oh, oh, yeah. you know, he's just very nonchalant about everything. We're talking for the first 15 minutes. I finally said, Michael, do you know what's happening? And he said, not really. <laughs> and, uh, and I could believe it. He's just, you know, having yeah. fun. Yeah. He's just a little kid. So, um, so now go ahead, uh, 12 years. And, uh, the manager then of the Jacksons calls me and says, we're going to be doing a tour. This is right after off the wall. Mm. We're going to be doing a tour with the band and, uh, want to record it like you to record it. I said, great. And so we talked about how to do it. And we decided to do it halfway through the tour when the band would be locked in and do it in the Northeast because you have a recording truck, you know, a control room on wheels to uh, do the recording. And uh, that way the truck, the truck can get from one gig to the next because they're fairly close. Mm -hmm. And they sent me to Atlanta to see a show the first night. Mm. And so in the audience, so that's what I did and saw an incredible show and just blown away with, with Michael. Um, and the next morning, Limo picked me up at the hotel and took me to the airport and they put me in a room that was reserved for them. And I walked in and the four of the brothers were sitting on the floor around each other on one side of the room. And on the other side of the room was Michael all by himself. Hmm. So 
naturally I I picked out to go over and sit down, plop myself down next to Michael and shook his hand and said, hi, I'm Bill Snay. I'm going to be recording you guys. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, do you happen to remember, uh, you know, almost a dozen years ago, one day in a studio in Hollywood where, and he didn't remember it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the older two boys did mm-hmm. when I talked to them later. And, um, uh, and I told him, you know, I said, we sat and, you know, chatted for quite a while. And, and, uh, and I asked you if you knew what was happening and you said, not really. And I, and you know, he kind of chuckled. And then I said, well, Michael, do you know what's happening now? <laughs> and he just gave me, a, he gave me a very wry <laughs> smile and he did. And, uh, yeah, so that was it. And I, you know, that this story is in the book, uh, including me being on the bus with the boys mm. that people want to buy that book now. Anyway, wow. yeah. Wow. So, well, and I love the part of the story where you say that the van pulled up and it says the Jacksons from Gary, Indiana on it because picture today Ed Sheeran riding around with a vehicle that says Ed Sheeran on the outside or, or Adam Levine <laughs> in Maroon 5, you know. <laughs> Talk about a sign of the times. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I'm joined today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Nashville by internationally renowned producer, engineer, and mix master Bill Schnee. Visit his official website at com. I will put a link to it on the show page for this episode at nhte.net. There is a link there so you can follow him on Instagram as well. His new book, which we will continue talking about shortly, is called Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. There are links on his website to order the book from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Books A Million. Plus, when you do, you'll be able to find a key phrase in it that you can then take to Bill's website and unlock over one-third of Bill's original manuscript that was cut in the editing process, and thus you will get access to more stories and more photos. Meanwhile, there are people listening to this show who are not just musicians. If you are an actor, an author, an entrepreneur, an inventor, a comedian, a business coach, or life coach, a spokesperson slash expert, and yes, if you are a singer or musician, meaning you're someone who gets interviewed or should get interviewed, invest in yourself and your career by taking the online class that I launched at interviewtipscourse.com. It's packed with close to 30 tips so that you can better position yourself for getting results for your business, your product, or your service. And I've also included a module that contains more than 15 sources you can use to try to get more interviews. Go to interviewtipscourse.com and get registered so you can roll up your sleeves with the videos and the downloadable PDFs that go with all this content. Take advantage of all my years of experience not only hosting this show, but booking my clients into interviews, plus all the time that I spent working in the Olympic movement and the National Hockey League facilitating media interviews with players, coaches, and executives. Go to interviewtipscourse.com and get started today so that you benefit from the time you put into being interviewed on radio, TV, podcasts, and more. Bill, we're talking about the book, and I love that title, by the way, Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. Clearly, someone with a career like yours had lots and lots of stories to tell, yet I wonder, was it a case of you knowing that and just needing to one day find the time to write them all, or did people have to actually push you and nag you enough with, you've got to write a book, and until you finally decided, okay, fine, I'll set some time aside and try to put some thoughts down? Yeah, very close to the second thing you said there. What happened was, uh, I love telling stories, and because I've had such a wonderfully blessed career, I've got a lot of stories. And uh, people would say, you know, when I'd tell a couple of them, you should write a book. 
Um, yeah, yeah. But it felt to me like it was going to just be too much of I did this, then I did that, then mm. I did this, then I did that. It was too self-serving, so I wasn't into it. But it wasn't until a, a producer of a Brazilian act that I was mixing took me to dinner afterwards, and I told a couple of stories, and he said the usual, hey, you should write a book. And I said, yeah, I, I know, I've heard it. He said, but you know, the record business as we know it was born in the 50s, grew up in the 60s, and peaked in the 70s into the 80s. Mm -hmm. It was a very short time, very iconic time, never to be repeated again, and you were there. And when he said you were there, it dawned on me that I could tell stories that other people told me, you know, mm -hmm. my friends in the business, that it wouldn't have to all be my stories, it could mm -hmm. be some other ones. And it was right then that I, I decided I was gonna write a book well, I mentioned about how folks can unlock access to portions of your original manuscript that were cut. How ironic was it to be in the seat that you've sat in professionally for 50-plus years and now all of a sudden be on the receiving end of someone wanting to make edits to your work? <laughs> yeah, it was it was painful, to be sure, <laughs> um, because you put all that time uh, and energy into it. And, it, you know, it was going to be wasted. And that's why I, I was bemoaning that fact to a friend who said to me, gave me the idea, why don't you just uh, put a note in the book and put the, all the deleted scenes, so to speak, on your website and send them there. And so that's what we've done. And it's worked out really well. So was there even a period of time then long enough for it to impact you in such a way that you thought, wow, I, all these years into doing what I'm doing, I now have a fresh perspective of what these artists feel like when we're trying to for the benefit of the song when we're trying to make edits to their work or was it no this was you know literally a couple days bruce that they changed my mind that okay we can still retain the edited manuscript yeah i mean that's basically the deal you know you uh, it's, uh, it, you know, it wasn't my decision. It's the publisher's decision that it had to be a hundred thousand words. Uh, in fact, I was shocked when the, when the books, first books finally showed up on my doorstep, how small it was. I, you know, I, geez, we could have had more, you know, it wasn't, it's, you know, but they felt that that's what people, you know, want not to get bored. But all I've heard from everybody is, you know, it's, a, it's a pretty quick read, I think. And, uh, and I hope a fun read. But it was definitely difficult watching parts of stories get cut out and whole stories get cut out. So does that prompt the question, have people already been asking you if there will be another book? Because when you say I was surprised at how small it was, or is it, you know, no, everything I had to tell is in there and in the bonus content that's on my website? Yeah, I mean, some of the stories, you know, got cut down, and there's no sense putting the pieces that were cut down in. But, uh, but all the stories I wrote, and like I said, I was still, I, I mean, I, I, I was still writing. I could have kept writing. Wow. There's an awful lot, not as many big, interesting ones, and that's what the uh, editor was interested in uh, maintaining. But uh, there were, there was, you know, there's a lot of people that no one ever asked about, you know, that are on the discography there. Uh, you know, just one-offs and that kind of thing. A lot of these people in the book, so, you uh, you, you know, I, I had repeat business with a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately in that world, you know, the book is going to sell if you've got the more and more sexy names that you can talk about that you worked with that people are going to recognize. It's not, un not unlike selling music and having a great 
liner note of all kinds of people that worked on the project. Sure. I want to continue to talk about the book, but let's put it aside for a minute. There's a few other things I want to get into, and, and it'll give you time to think of maybe one or two more stories that we can have you share at the end of this episode. But, Bill, when you listen to music, you clearly are doing so with an ear that's far, far more discriminatory than the average listener. What are you listening for? Or perhaps I should say, what maybe stands out for all the wrong reasons, unfortunately? <laughs> well, yes, there's there's no question that once you you know how everything is put together and you've put more than a few things together that way that you can't help but... Uh, try start to dissect things. That said, I really try my. Be- I've always thought of myself as a a, a musician that mixes, mm. that records, uh, not an engineer that produces. But mm. uh, the other way around. And I listen to music as a musician and and a music lover more than anything. And uh, so uh, I'm pretty good at d- divorcing the two, wow. uh, but certainly not 100%. So, yeah, there'll be times when something will, will strike me. And uh, But I, like I think I said it in the book, it's so true for me. You know, I, like I said, my defining moment was realizing that good sound can really help uh, the emotional content of music, can bring it you know, to life, so to speak. That's what it was doing for my band when I heard that first recording. But but in general, I would much rather, you know, I think that mediocre music, well-recorded, is not anywhere near as good as the, the opposite. Yeah. Uh, terrible yeah. recorded great music. Um, and, you know, historically, there's plenty of those uh, uh, as, as things were being figured out in the, in the recording process years ago in the 60s and so on. So... Yeah, I listen as a musician. Yeah, it's not unlike in the podcasting world where there's this debate that rages where people say, you just really got to have great content. It it will trump, you know, bad audio. And I say, no, number one, I'm a bit of an audio snob myself. But number two, you can have great content. But if the audio is just unlistenable, then it doesn't matter how good the interview or the conversation or the dialogue or whatever is. Exactly. And it, it, it makes me wonder, Bill... What about the situations, you know, I remember very recently listening to a song and the mix was just so bad, the vocals were down to the point where I thought, wow, how did anyone not catch this? What about when people come to you and they say, oh, I'd really love you to listen to my music, and then the professional in you comes out instead of the musician, and you do think that, gosh, this is a a really poor mix job. How do you handle that? Because this is someone that's excited about their work, and they want you to comment from a musician standpoint about what you just listened to, and all you can hear is, wow, this really was not the best mix. Yeah, well, that's for sure an awkward situation, to be sure, Uh, and one that I don't enjoy one little bit <laughs> uh, sure. but you know there's a part of me that wants to be honest with them you know because that's what they're looking for and yet on the other hand it, it you know it sounds self-serving like i'm looking for work or something yeah you know which in fact i'm not usually when you <laughs> talk about that kind of thing so yeah not fun well and the question i'm about to ask you you may just repeat an answer or two that you just gave me but the present day recording scene what is one piece of advice that you would give to an aspiring performer production-wise when it comes time for recording their original music? Well, I think one of the, you know, something that's important to me, of course, and I think it's important to the music is is to try to get the, your stuff sounding as good as it can sound. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, 
that, that, that sits on the performers these days. I say, unfortunately, it's a mixed bag because the good news is everybody can afford to have, uh, quote, professional recording uh, equipment uh, in their house. You know, a, a cheap DAW is not that expensive. But it doesn't come, you know, you can figure out how to turn everything on, but it doesn't come with the talent to uh, to operate it to the best that it can be. Um, but that's, I think that's, it's important for them to, for people to coming up like that, to learn that, um, to, to be, help make the sound the best that it can be. Yeah, I think what I hear you saying is the good news is that an aspiring musician nowadays can afford to do this on their own. The bad news is an aspiring musician today can afford to do this on their own. Well, you're absolutely right, Bruce. And I, you know, it, 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 believe me, this was the, uh, what do I say? The, uh, the, uh, nice, be nice bill answer as opposed to, <laughs> as opposed to the hard, hard and cold facts, which is, look, look, let me be honest, hundred percent honest. I'm a guy that spent, I've spent uh, decades and still learning today. Learning is craft, the, you know, the the art and science of recording and mixing. And, uh, you know, to bypass that, which is, excuse me, what's happening today in, you know, in a tremendous amount, young people have, having to learn it on their own. That's like you just said, it's the good news, bad news. But the bad news aspect of that is that they don't get to go in with professionals right. you know that's one of the saddest things about the independent world today is that the record companies certainly had their fill of ills uh i can i can assure you but they did provide a lot of things uh, in terms of mentoring young artists mm. and one of the many things is that you know young artists need development how many acts uh, it took several albums for them to find their voice you know, I, I mean, I, you know, a couple that I worked with, uh, Pablo Cruz, uh, I did their third album, which was the first one that hit and that kind of thing. You know, they, the record companies at the, back in the seventies, if they believed in an artist, they would let them develop, find their voice. And, uh, that doesn't happen anymore. And, and that, that's kind of sad to me. But it's the world we live in, and you have to just do it. You have just have to do it. I spoke to a, a class uh, last night of you know boys and girls that are studying recording, and I told them, uh, I tell them, you know, you take advantage of every opportunity, and you know, and it's great that you're in school to learn this uh, because it, it's a, it's the only option now. You know, back in the day, you uh, a, an aspiring engineer would you know figure out how to get a job in a studio as a tea boy, you know, making coffee or whatever mm -hmm. and work his way up to learn, learn the con all the stuff in the control room, work his way up to being a second engineer and ultimately then get to watch a bunch of quote masters, uh, sit in the, behind the board and an engineer and see how they all do it. It was an apprenticeship program. Well, that doesn't exist anymore because there's so few studios. Mm. It's harder and harder to get a get a job like that. So what we have instead are recording schools that have all of them have and universities. I mean, not just recording schools, but many, many, many universities have schools for recording, and they have actual studios so that the kids can get in and actually put their hands on faders and microphones yeah. and all that. Yeah, great point. Which is great. Great point. And for the audience in there, Bill mentioned the band Pablo Cruz. Uh, interestingly enough, way back on episode 243, 
of this show, my guest was none other than Dave Jenkins, an original member of Pablo Cruz. So I'll put a link so you can go back and listen to that one, too. So somewhere along that line, I'm sure you could talk all about watching the transition from analog to digital over the years. But I wonder, is there one piece of gear that was kind of a game changer for you at some point in your career and or really kind of revolutionized the way you did things or, or maybe not necessarily? Yeah, Bruce, the actual thing that would be the uh, DAW, uh, Pro Tools in my case, uh, the uh, you know, we went to, to digital uh, dash machines, digital tape machines, and I was never a fan. Um, I went kicking and screaming into the digital world, uh, not because I loved analog so much, because it was fraught with problems, but I didn't think that early digital sounded very good uh, at all. Mm. And so... Um, so I was not a fan, let alone the fact that there were three different uh, types of tape machines to record digitally, and some people thought one was better than the other, so I wasn't about to buy three machines, so I just let let the person decide if they wanted digital, they would rent it. Mm. But when I, when I saw the production value of Pro Tools, I knew right away that it, that was going to take over. Um, you know, it was just—it was just obvious that it was going to make the world a different place. So that—that that was the game changer for me was mm-hmm. having to uh, jump in and learn that, which you know, which I did, and now I love it. You know, it's uh, <laughs> the early digital, like I said, didn't sound very good because of the the low sampling rates and bit rates, but now that we're up higher, um, it's much, much, much better. And in fact, uh, true audiophile recordings can be made at 24192. Uh, so it's great now. What about that line between being flexible, though, adapting to change? And the line between being flexible and the, and on the other side of the line is if it ain't broke, don't fix it, meaning trying new methods, new equipment, new software versus sticking with tried and true methods. Yeah, well, you know, like so many things, uh, there's a good news, bad news to, to that kind of thing. And especially today now, because, uh, you know, with... Uh, if we ju- just jump into the modern world, which is all about DAWs and plugins instead of hardware for changing sound and whatnot, modifying sound, we have just, you know, I, I, I'm afraid to count how many plugins I have in my computer. <laughs> uh, maybe I don't know if I can count that high. No, but it's, it's a big number. And, and there's new, new things all the time. And, uh, of course, you know, there's so many companies making the same kinds of things. Uh, but to, it, it, the, it, it's just, in other words, in the analog days when something came out, uh, you know, you, you'd, you'd borrow it, you'd rent it, whatever, and a piece of hardware, and oh, this is pretty good. Maybe I need to own one of these, that kind of thing. Now with plugins, there's so many of the same kinds of things. You, you, there, there isn't enough time to try them all. Mm. Uh, you know, it's just like everything with technology; it, it, it's advancing at a much higher rate, logarithmically compared. to compared to what it was in the, like in the seventies when there weren't that many new things coming out and yeah, realized that tape from the time we got tape from the Germans, the actual process of tape recording didn't change. Uh, it, you know, sure the electronics got a little bit better and they worked on the tape emulsions, uh, to, to try to make them better and low noise and this and that, but it was basically the same thing. And with digital, we've you know we've definitely just changed completely how uh, the, the quality of it by what has what has happened in learning about filtering and uh, the filters that you have to have and the 
And again, the A to D converters, converting to digital, converting back to analog, that kind of thing. So I want to ask you one final question from kind of the production side of things before we close with having you tell another story from your book. I'm wondering your vision, your view, your opinion, your thoughts, all these years that you've been in the business, 50-plus years, the subject of remastering, you know, is there a place in your heart for the original recordings where maybe you kind of are a little bothered by people doing remasterings? Is an audio professional's feelings is their ego hurt when someone says, we're going to remaster that? What are your thoughts on the whole remastering popularization that we've seen so, so much of? Um, yeah, I'm not... <laughs> the, the problem with that, I'm not, it's not that I'm against it. I'm, what I'm against is that things, uh, you know, in the original recording, the people involved are very involved in every aspect of it. So from from the recording to the mixing to the mastering, that's what the producer and the artist, you know, put their uh, blood, sweat, and tears into, and that's the record that they made. Exactly. So um, the the trouble is sometimes what record companies will do things, uh, to, you know, the expedient way. That's mm-hmm. expedient equals cheaper, <laughs> and and so we have you know take immersive audio for instance. Please take immersive audio. Anyway, uh, <laughs> take this new thing with with Dolby Atmos and whatnot and they're the record companies are running in now and, and having the uh, all these catalog records remixed and immersive and yet they're not making any attempt to get the original people involved which would at least help that you know to, uh, in great fashion mm. and you know that that's it's just wrong but this this happened when they when they converted the cds all the albums that had been made in lps where they ran in and, and remastered them, and in and I, I think the majority for sure, they did not go back to the original people, even the original mastering house, to see if they were into the CD production, wow. so that they could at least get the master and do it. So a lot of that was another thing. When the first CDs came out, they uh, uh, the, many of them were not very good sounding. And uh, because of how they had been, you know, how they had remastered, they didn't use the original master. They used a tape copy, that kind of thing. Mm. And so that's the unfortunate part is that uh, the the quality doesn't stay, you know, where the artist and producer intended it to be. Indeed. Indeed. Tremendous perspective, as I knew you would have. Let's close with having you share with the audience another story from your book, Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. Okay, here's one that uh, is is kind of fun. Uh, I did the the uh, tracking for Asia, Steely Dan's Asia album. Yes. And when and when Gary Katz, the producer, Steely Dan's producer, called me and asked me about doing it, and I, of course I said yes because I'd become a, a big fan. Uh, he said, "Now we're going to have a revolving door of drummers, meaning you're going to be getting a new drum sound every two or three days." And I said, "That's fine." And uh, and it was very fun in that regard. Well, one of the drummers they brought in from New York was Steve Gadd. Mm. And I had become a fan uh, of him from 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover that he played on Paul Simon's hit that had that great drag snare drum on it. So I was very excited to meet him and work with him. And so he came in and we recorded, the first day we recorded two songs and uh, I thought they were both great. 
and just Todd's playing was really wonderful. And I called my friend Richard Perry, the great record producer, who I'd done a lot of work with, I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and and told him, I said, you know that Steve Gadd, I'm, I'm recording Steely Dan with him, and he is a monster. And Richard said, do you think I could get a session with him? And I said, well, we don't start until two. Let me ask Gary Katz. So I called Gary, and Gary said, uh, okay, sure. He was a big fan of Richard, so mm. he, he acquiesced. But he also he also knew Richard's ways, which were, uh, you know, <laughs> he took a lot of time to get a track. He really pushed musicians, singers, and everything. Mm. He was, you know, and he said, but you, you got to start on time. The, the boys will kill me if we don't start on time. <laughs> I said, don't worry, I'll turn the monitor off at, at one o'clock so we can make the transition. He said, okay. So uh, the next morning, Richard comes in with uh, this cute little character, very animated, named Leo Sayer. Mm. And we had the song to, to cut, and it was called You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. Wow. And if you go back now and listening to that number one record, that uh, it's got the same, not the same, but uh, uh, the same drag, but obviously a different groove. But yeah. uh, that that uh, he he put to it, and uh, and we got it. I mean, talk mm. about miracles! We got it in two hours and thirty five minutes, which for Richard Perry is, was unheard of, <laughs> and so much so. And Richard, being the pusher that he is, he said, "Can we do another song?" <laughs> and I said, "Richard, we've, we've got twenty five minutes." He said, it's okay, it's it's an easy song, whatever. So wow. sure enough, we popped up another song, and we cut the song How Much Love, which was wow. the third single from that, that big album. Yeah. And that afternoon, I recorded Asia, the song. So it was a pretty wow. big day in the studio. Wow. Yeah, I'm getting goosebumps here listening to this. Oh, my gosh. Wow, wow, fantastic, fantastic. Oh, Bill, so wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you for your time and for all your great stories. And I'm going to recap here in a minute again for the listeners where they can find your book and find you online. But for now, I just want to thank you so much for being on Now Here This Entertainment. Okay, thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. That will do it for another episode of Now Here This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to internationally renowned producer, engineer, and mix master Bill Schnee. Do visit his official website at com. And again, I will have a link to it on the show page for this episode at nhte.net. Remember, there is a link there to follow Bill on Instagram, which I myself did this morning, and I encourage you to do the same. His new book that you've heard him talk about is called Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. There are links on com to order it from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Books A Million. And remember, when you do, you'll be able to find a key phrase in it that you can then take to Bill's website to unlock over one-third of Bill's original manuscript that was cut in the editing process, and thus you will get access to more stories and more photos. Be reminded that if you or someone you know is in a position where you or they get interviewed on radio, TV, podcasts, etc., or should be getting interviewed or interviewed more, then the online class that I launched is a great resource to benefit more from those efforts that you or they are making. This isn't a go-at-your-own-pace format, by the way, so you don't have to worry about a date and time not working with your schedule. At interviewtipscourse.com, there are videos and PDF downloads that all will help you towards getting better results, which means more sales, more downloads, more clients, more bookings, whatever your desired goal is for getting interviewed. Don't keep doing interviews and coming away feeling it was a waste of your time. Invest in yourself and your career. Go to interviewtipscourse.com now and get started. 
That will do it for episode 405. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you again next week on another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment.